Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. I'm just noticing Dave like putting his, his finger in front of his lips. No, I was just then... shushing a child behind you. Oh, okay. So keep on going. I get, I get that a lot myself. <laughs> Hi everyone, you are listening to Living the Dream and you are joined here with Dave. You can follow me on Twitter at with SoberSensors. And we're very lucky today because I have literally sitting with me at the dining room table, eating a sandwich, is a long-term friend of the show. Michael, how are you? I hope you're. Uh, I hope you. You've got that sting at the start of it. Always. Or, or otherwise, that would have just been weird. <laughs> we were saying weird. Michael, look. First of all, I want to really thank you because you you were one of the people earlier on the year who was one of the more generous donators that allowed us to have this fancy equipment that is now sitting in front of you. Yeah. But I think more than just like a financial supporter and friend of the show, I think you've really been what's the word, an interlocker of the ideas that we've tried to engage with, you know, regularly providing commentary. You yourself um, have, uh, you know, uh, a radical voice out there in social media. And I think um, we've taken on a number of the different ideas that you've raised and tried to address them with shows. Mm. So I think you've been there shaping things as they go. Mm. So it's really great that you've come up from Sydney um, to hang out with us, which yeah. we really appreciate. Enjoying Queensland? It's good, and uh, yeah, I'd just like to say that uh, yeah, I respond very well to the the lure of sandwiches. Um, yeah. That 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 compels me to go interstate at times. <laughs> well, look, we all these people gave us money that we still owe sandwiches, lunches, and value <laughs> theory conversations to. So yeah. we're not stiffing you on it, right? Like, yeah. um, get in contact with us and say, Dave, you know, where's my sandwich? And conversation about use for use value versus exchange value, and we will come through. Um, but Michael, we are planning to, I guess, do while you're up here, probably two shows yep. because there's a lot of stuff that um, we want to chat about. Yeah. Um, so we want to talk about the NDIS because, as you'd be aware, the NDIS is something that we've had a particular interest here at Living the Dream. We had a show earlier this year um, where Vanna Marley spoke about her experiences, I guess, as her mum to using inverted commas a customer of NDIS and what it means to be on that level. Mm. I've got an- we've got another uh, show sitting in the vault where we talk to Rob, who works at the Department of Communities, about you know how for those workers how they see the logic of NDIS playing out Mm. Um, but also you recently have been writing about the UBI you've been involved in public housing um, activities and you um, attended recently um, Tim uh, Supomasan's presentation at the Whitlam Centre and so you've got a lot to say right so there's a lot to cover but I thought maybe we'll start today chatting about uh, as someone who's a frontline uh, care worker is that accurate description yeah well I mean, we could start with the sandwich if you'd like. Yeah, how was the sandwich? Um, the sandwich is good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've noticed you've got two kinds of meats in there. Yeah. Um, and a seeded uh, mustard base in there as well. Um, goes down well, and uh, I think it was worth travelling up the Pacific Highway for. So I appreciate the, the, the kind gesture. No worries. Good fucking sandwich, man. <laughs> no worries. So, uh, yeah, shall we... 
Yeah, let's, I, let's I, talk politics. Indeed. <laughs> so maybe we'll start with um, the kind of nitty-gritty, at-the-coalface, workers' inquiry kind of approach mm. to NDIS. So yep. how long have you worked? Is, is, is the community service or care industry the best way to describe it? Or how is it talked about in the work that you do? Uh, um, I'm, I'm kind of um, comfortable with calling it community welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose when you call it community services, that kind of drifts into um, sort of code for public service. Mm-hmm. So if you call it community welfare, I think um, it, it has a bit more of an edge to it in terms of um, this is the, the, the clientele that, that one provides support to and provides, um, uh, you know, providing some sort of resources towards, yeah. you know. Um, so, and I think in terms of NDIS, I think it's also uh, quite um, a poignant moment as well. Um Particularly because at the end of last year, there was a Productivity Commission report Mm -hmm. um, that the federal government wrote in regards to the NDIS. Um, And it's a a very substantial document in terms of um, assessing how it's performing. Um, And through a government document, um, it was quite clear even through that, such a prosaic, uh, you know, document um that they're saying the ndis is shit yeah. <laughs> uh the two things that really stuck out for me is that um they're not spending the money as well as they could mm-hmm. uh, that's what the, the the report's saying in its um in its public services um the other element to it as well is that um they're also saying that it's not reaching customers as well or clients this is the other thing as well it's like where we're continually encouraged to use more banking type terms um, when doing the community services under ndis yeah so the other getting back to my point the the second thing uh, element from that report is is that it's not getting out to clients as well as it could mm-hmm. um, and making it even more profound and this has also been uh, well documented um, within mainstream media that there is a huge waiting list. Um, mm. And I, I put that more down to the bureaucratic side of things rather than actual customer or client demand. Mm-hmm. Um, my view is that that just isn't the, the infrastructure right now to get through everything timely and being able to put the services in place and administer accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> I mean, uh, there's, there's been voices of concern ever since that this was implemented, and it's been around for a few years now, and there's been a gradual rollout. It was trialled in the Hunter region, mm-hmm. um, and then from there it spread nationally. Um, and I suppose that if there was ever a consistent um, concern that's been raised, it's how you administer something like this. Um, you're trying to introduce um, a scheme where... There's a lot of market-driven ideology associated with it where a, a, a client is rendered as a consumer mm-hmm. that, um, that their power to choose uh, what's in their best interest, how, what they can purchase mm. is something that's going to dictate um, effective customer or client services for mm-hmm. them. Um, but this is ideological. How this actually maps out and um, projects it projects out in the real world is a different story altogether. 
Um, and you, you're seeing that play out, and um, particularly through um, that idea of bureaucracy um, and people missing out because people are getting involved in the throes of bureaucracy. And I mean, this isn't anything new. Uh, mm. You see this through Centrelink, mm-hmm. um, which is where there's been well documented concerns, particularly in the last couple of years, as to how that's been performing, let alone, <laughs> you know, the grander history behind um, welfare within Australia. But it's the parallels between NDIS and Centrelink that's immediately concerning. And for me, it's like uh, I think things have really come to a head now with this Productivity Commission report, mm-hmm. where the, that's cited some very uh, major concerns regarding NDIS. And the government are saying it you mm-hmm. know, through that report. So they're, they're kind of owning the fact that there are issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, so these... This is what you would identify um, and how it impacts upon yourself as a worker on the ground um, is, is is very much a similar, well, I'm not going to, if it's, in many ways it's still comparing apples and oranges, but there's still the experience of bureaucracy as a worker, mm-hmm. that you still feel the, the, the same kinds of frustrations as a worker mm-hmm. compared to a customer so in, in a, or a client. Like on a very practical sense, you've, you've been doing this kind of work for about 10 years, right? Yep. So in that 10-year process, it's changed from one approach to funding. Block-funded. To, to block, so break that down. What, what do you mean by block funding to our, to our listeners? So if you talk about block funding, that effectively means services that are governed through government funding, block funding. Um, so that would indicate that um, it's funding where uh, the government or the funding body um, provides a lot of direction um, as to how that funding is to be spent and how services are to be rendered in accordance with that funding. Um, and it's also time-based as well. So they'll say, look, here's some money. you got three years. Let's have some outcomes. If you achieve those outcomes, you may or you may not get the money. Um, if there's a change of government, highly unlikely, you mightn't get that money. So would that look like things like, okay, so, you know, I'm Anglicare or Blue Care or whoever the different bodies are. Mm. Um, you know, I, I go to the state government. The state government says you need to provide disability support to the southwest of Brisbane. We estimate there's X amount of people that are covered by. Here's a couple of million dollars. We expect in a couple of years you can show these results. Go off and do it. Well, this is, this is an interesting trend in itself because at the start of things, um, and when I say the start of things, I'd probably put it maybe around about the late 70s, early 80s, um, when government threw money at it, the government also acted it as the custodian. So they were running a lot of programs and services themselves. Mm-hmm. So the lines of accountability were directly back to the government. Now, as you see probably since that time through to maybe the end of the noughties, you saw a gradual process where it was farmed off into the not-for-profit sector. Mm. Um, so that yeah, that's problematic in a number of ways. Yeah. I mean, I guess the first thing is that the blog funding model still remain consistent. You know, you're going to throw money at something and something's going to do it in, re- in return. But... Where it becomes particularly problematic is um, there's no check as to um, salaries that workers might earn. 
underneath um, underneath these contractual arrangements because when government um, created the programs back late 70s, early 80s, everything was effectively overlooked by the PSA. Mm-hmm. That, so the, the public sector union. Yeah, yeah, so that in many ways, that third-party oversight... Um, and people would have been employed as like full-term public sec- sector workers, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's no finite terms as well in many in many regards too. So you um, you did a community you did a community program. Um, there wouldn't be as much pressure in terms of making outcomes on a time mm. basis. Um, so when you bring it out to the not-for-profit sector, um, having that third-party oversight gets a bit lost because suddenly you're bringing it out to an array of different unions where mm. there's different philosophies and good unions and bad unions. Because um, I know when I used to work doing disability support, mm. I was hired as a casual, for yep. example. Yeah. So which was completely, con- which I think everyone but caseworkers yep. were hired were hired as casuals. Yep. No, and even though it was a pro-union workplace, yep. right? And even when we got recruited, the caseworkers are like, you should join, you know that. Um, but still, there, it's, a, it's a different kind of institutional arrangement than when I've later been employed as a public servant, right? Mm. Like, well, the other thing as well is that um, another edge to it is that it introduces competition as well. Mm. So government will say, look, here's some money. Here's the contract. This is the duration of the contract. Um, and then all of a sudden, you've got all these not-for-profits clamoring for that yeah. money. An interesting example about that is when, um, when the Newman government was elected in Queensland, they cut all, cut all this funding for different community programs. And I heard through the grapevine that from people who were social workers working the big housing providers that their bosses actually said, this is a fantastic opportunity because it means all our competitors can be smashed. And they encourage their workers not to involve themselves in protests about the cuts to the sector on the whole because yeah. they wanted to mark them, market themselves as the preferred provider of the government. Well, this is the thing. It's like it depoliticizes any, poten- any potential labor, labor-based response mm-hmm. um, because if, um, if as a worker you arc up, then suddenly your funding gets threatened. Um, mm. And I can kind of refer to a personal example there where um, you do arc up. Um, um, this might be a, a preface I need to make as well, Dave. Like, I've got to be a bit conscious about yeah. naming names. Yeah, name, name no names and yeah. indi- give nothing that would indicate any organisations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I could come up with some witty aliases. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's... I'm getting full and high on your sandwich, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, one, one particular position I had uh, was um, I started um, uh, raising a few concerns as to how the money was being spent and also the management structure in place for this not-for-profit. Uh, a few months later, I was being told that, um, that money had been spended a bit more uh, frequently than first uh, observed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I was told that there was no longer any money left in the cupboard. Oh, really? Um, so I found myself finishing about half a year earlier than I was expecting. And uh, looking back on it, I would attribute that to saying things that um, where I could have just kind of kept my trap So it's a really easy way of, of being able to respond to dissent then is to use limited funding pools yeah. as the, the way that you do this. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm... I'm trying to think whether that was an actual accidental effect of, of bringing, um, bringing... People might, might hear kids in the background. They've busted <laughs> out of their room. But it's all good. Keep on going. Um, 
I think, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's an accidental or a deliberate thing where um, if you farm, uh, you farm services out to not-for-profit sector and create such a competitive environment in terms of um, how the the funding is to be administered that way, um, whether that was a prescribed thing. Yeah, I think people haven't really thought about this seriously enough either. You know, like basically the kind of the left rhetoric is often, you know, there's the state, it's great. Now the social democrat left rhetoric, things are put out for to the market. But in fact, state services in Australia are actually provided on the at the coalface on the whole by not for, not for profits. Yeah, like and actually understanding that complicated matrix of funding and not-for-profits. I don't think people kind of think about seriously enough or like to even map it, then to theorise it, if that makes sense, and, and how it operates. I just don't think it's on. Like, because right across the board, if you, if you receive state services, you probably receive them via a, a not-for-profit these days. Yeah. And the people who actually provide the work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that is the experience these days. Um, and when a person receives a community service, it's like it's not identified with government funding. It's mm. identified with the not-for-profit organisation you're mm. accessing the service from. Um, and look, in itself, it's quite a Byzantine structure, mm. you know. Um, if you're going to... You're a worker, and if you're going to map that out to the customer, you're going to bamboozle them. Mm. When you're actually... In many cases, you're basically just trying to save them, you mm. know. <laughs> Um, so you want to at least spare them from the politics of all of that. Um, but yeah, very complicated. And also it's a very, it's been a very depoliticizing trend, um, in terms of where workers power is now compared to where it was say 30 years ago in terms of being a community Mm. service worker. Do you, have you, do you find that in terms of your work that you encounter, like, are the people you work with, are they people that have been in the industry for 20, 30 years or are people spend small amounts of time there? Is there much memory of these changes of the working conditions and, and the like? It's interesting because um, I've, I've worked a variety of roles. So I've done community development, case management, um, advocacy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, a couple of sector development roles. And when I say sector development, that's probably a bit more like big picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of worked in a variety of uh, roles. Um, but I don't know. It's like I'd like to say it depends upon the role. But the other thing I'd like to, to really think of, it's I tend to think about the labor the way things were made up in the workplace as a point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first job when I was fresh out of uni, uh, when I finished my um, minors degree, I think, oh God, that was 15 years ago. Um, you, you go out to a workforce and uh, there are a lot of people there that were a good 20, 30 years older than you. Um, and they were kind of like the rusted on types where they were experiencing, you know, a job where you'd kind of hang around there for a good 15, 20 years. Mm. Um, And they were starting to get introduced to this idea of finite terms of funding and services. Um, But they were looking on the edge of retirement. But Mm. I think they were kind of relaxed with the fact that they've had all these years of experience under their belt. And, um, they very much did their best to present that, and I don't know. I don't know whether this is like dissonance on my end, I suppose. But um, when you come into that out of uni, it's kind of intimidating. Mm. 
because yeah, you you've got the degrees and you've got your qualifications, but you don't have the real world experience. Um, and you've got an older workforce that kind of really dress that up to say, well, look, we're kind of seeing some changes. We're seeing some new blood coming through. Suddenly our labor might become a bit more expendable mm. and we're competing with these young ones. What strengths do we have? Mm -hmm. Well, we've worked about 20 or 30 years um, and we know it all. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of what, um, that was my impressions when I was fresh out of uni. But as time progressed, um, the funding positions became, the funding conditions became a lot more tighter, you know, it, what was once five years, then became three years, and then became um, literally a year-by-year -year prospect with a lot of the um, a lot of the roles that you would work. Um, so I I think how that would impact uh, the in terms of labour demographics is that you'd find um, a lot more people that you'd work with more younger, mm. in the sense that they are prepared to take on such precarious funding arrangements because mm. they just want their foot in the door, you know, in terms of getting that initial experience. Um, and they're young as well. It's like uh, they haven't seen uh, the, the, well, I mean, the privilege that I've had is seeing um, labor changes in community, in the community's welfare sector over a couple of generations now. Mm. These kids coming into it, it's like, well, this is normal. Um, this is a normal environment, whereas to me it's um, it's it's phenomenal. Mm. Um, these are profound changes. Uh, so, yeah, you see a lot more younger people coming into it now. Um, not so much. Well, they don't have the families; like they're too young for that. Mm. The, their hope would be to, is to find a, a, a substantial enough employment arrangement where it's like, well, if I can work in this role for at least a few years and be able to build some cred, then that's enough income to actually look at a family and, and purchase a house and squirrel away all the money that's involved with doing that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see how it's all changed over the last 15 years or so um but that's that's the marketable thing that i've noticed they they get that they're, they're younger um they're younger and um yeah the the that ongoing process of precarity um there's a good sense of normalization there because quite bluntly kids are too young to to really know alternatives so precar people employ precariously working in services funded precariously correct and do you, do you find the people you're working with are spending smaller amounts of time in the industry? Um, how you mean? How do you mean? Like maybe you know, they're there for a couple of years and then they they're out to something else. So you're not finding people who are, you know, kind of career welfare workers. Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, the ones that hang around, you'll find they'll progress to team leader management roles. Mm. Um, that's if they hang around. Um, but I think other people, what they've done is that they've hung around for a year or two, maybe realized that there's another qualification they need to get. So they might go out and do a shit kicking role and combine that with the uni studies, get mm. the qualification, then have another go back into it. Um, but the other thing that's probably worth noting as well is the, um, is the, um, 
uh, oh, what, what's the term when you start doing roles like Deliveroo and the Uber, the yeah, those kind of app roles. employed roles, yeah, yeah. Um, you're seeing a lot of you're seeing young uh, labourers kind of get into that sort of work now. Mm. Um, so from there, you're kind of seeing something where they're saying they'll say, "Oh, well, I'm working part time as a support worker, but I'm also working as a." Um, also working on Airtasker, mm. picking up uh, bits and bobs here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also working, uh, doing delivery work, you know. Mm. Um, and then if it's a good weekend where everyone's busy going out to the city, I might pick up some Uber work as well. Mm. So it, it, it's been that sort of trajectory too, um, where it's not really so much a career per se. I think it's, um, to use the wank term, I think there's been some sort of individual entrepreneurship there. Mm. Um, in terms of how um, a twenty-something negotiates the labour market these days. So, what kind of practical shifts do we see as you move from this block funding to NDIS-based funding? So, the, I guess so. My understanding is that you've gone from a service receiving from the state government. Here's X amount of cash. This mm-hmm. is what you've got to do. Report to us in a couple of years. To now that. People who receive the services get an individual assessment, get a handful of vouchers, then approach brokers who then spend these vouchers amongst the competing services. Is that pretty much how it looks in practice or only in theory? Everything's changed, but the thing I'm really comfortable about is seeing the stuff that still remains the same. (laughs) Um, Now... One thing that um, that I've always particularly noticed is, is that when it's a state initiative, it's like there's some sort of pseudo-bureaucracy there, but it's enough to cope with. But as soon as it reaches federal level, um, all bets are off in mm. terms of the hoops that you have to jump through. Um, and you're seeing that through NDIS. So, you know, talked a bit before about how the, the bureaucratic experience, so I'm not going to go back into that, despite the fact that it'd be very therapeutic for me to do so. Um, but... I suppose, um, I suppose for me, the, the, the impact of that is, is that, oh, maybe ask me the question again, Dave, because I want to come up with something precise here. Oh, I, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm just interested in like, um, how it, I've forgotten the exact question, how it, you know, like this shift from services getting one big bucket of money yeah. to now there's going to be certain people receiving the funds yeah. and then going through brokers. Yeah. How does that change the work? You know, yeah. like, but also what you mentioned as well is that there's new, there's this extra level of government bureaucracy too in terms of how people get assessed. Yeah. Does it play out in the service as well? Do you now have to deal with the the federal level, you know, assessors and the like? Well, for me, it's like, you know, I'm a political animal, so you're trying to work out where how power plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this NDIS arrangement, um, the power seems to be in. Um, how compellingly bad it's been administered. Mm. Um, I think bureaucrats up above can can hold a lot of power and keep a lot of uh, retain a lot of authority over the virtue of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. They can just say, "I don't know," and that's a plausible response. Mm-hmm. The other issue as well is that um, when you do um, place. Uh, it's called consumer-directed funding. Mm-hmm. So when you um, when you give um, the scope of the funding a lot more towards customers, um, 
it raises a lot of issues in terms of capacity. Like, is there a capacity for customers uh, to make those those sound choices? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing as well is that they do they have a full understanding of what they're getting into, you mm-hmm. know? Um, because this this is processes that bamboozle workers at the best of times, let alone customers, mm-hmm. you know? So that's that's a new dynamic to it. But yeah, it's a federal level thing. More bureaucracy. How do you see it in actually in your day-to-day work? Um, so what I'm currently doing, I work as a support worker for a not-for-profit mm-hmm. um, for disadvantaged uh, clients that um, that also um, have disability. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's regular outreach type stuff. Um, so the stuff that they would like to do on a day-to-day thing, you'd help them out with. Um, the other thing that um, that uh, that uh, that's another aspect to my role, um, and it's been very much a hat hoc thing, um, and I suppose it's to the credit of my organisation to identify it and try to fill the breach in many ways. Is that um, I've also been handling NDIS transitions. Mm-hmm. So the role that I do is block funded, mm-hmm. um, but there seems to be this. Mm, this overbearing, irresistible idea that um, what we're doing is going to be morphed into some sort of NDIS arrangement anyway. So what we found ourselves being, found ourselves addressing is that you've got a lot of customers there that are being pushed onto NDIS. You know, you've got a disability, you qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but as I mentioned before, there's issues of capacity there. Now, You've got customers there that present with, well, let's use a mental illness for an example. Um, you're busy trying to get out of bed. That's your big challenge for the day. And then let alone, you're now being told, well, you've now got to manage um, a port, an online portal where mm. it has all these resources and you've got to make effective decisions in terms of how that's going to be spent because it's, it's not infinite what you're going to receive. Is there any kind of oversight to make sure that people actually have the you know, tech, no, own the computers and the internet access to access the online portal? Or is the idea that people will get themselves along to the local library or the internet cafe to do it? Nothing prescribed, nothing um, that's been articulated from uh, NDIS people. Mm-hmm. And that's where I come from in terms of this um, this ad hoc element to my role, which involves NDIS transitions. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we've um, we were, we try to identify is any clients that we come across where uh, where if they're a bit unsure about IT stuff, then you sit down with them and you help them navigate mm-hmm. it. Yeah, there's an assumption about literacy there as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, digital literacy. Yeah, um, that's a start, yeah. but. You're still dealing with customers that um, that have a lot of trouble reading and writing. Yeah, you know, um, I've got I had one client that um, where they didn't finish year ten. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they want to do, and they're also in their late twenties, um, and one of the things that they would like to, they're interested in doing, is a, a bit of a bridging course through TAFE to complete mm-hmm. that year ten certificate. But they can't read and they can't write, so. The challenge has been to work with the customer or the client and TAFE to work out how. How does the the customer demonstrate competency? Mm-hmm. What do they need to do to be able to um, demonstrate that they can? They've got enough literacy skills to be able to complete the year ten certificate. So, 
that's an experience that's like two or three steps removed from these pertinent issues about how to use, how to, um, how to access NDIS. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And, and say you can access the portal as well, how, like, and whatever, do you now work in an industry where the kind of security of employment that people have had since this shift from block funding is now dependent on how many people come to this service compared to how many people go to that service. You used to do X amount of hours of care, but now you only do three hours of care. Does it play out in that way as well? Are you talking a lot? Are you talking about KPIs? Like no, a t- just, KPA just, type just, of... just in terms of like, has it changed the working day for people, this shift in funding, or is it pretty much seamless? Well, well, to use the research parlance, um, you know, you've got, you've got qualitative forms of yeah. investigation and, queer and inquiry, and you've also got the qualitative, or yeah. quantitative and qualitative. Yeah. Um, obviously, when you go into community work, you're not doing it for the money. Mm. Um, you're not doing it for um, with the intention of um, getting various properties and assets by the end of it and a huge stock portfolio. You're doing it because of the quality of work. Mm. To make a difference, and to, and uh, and the idea that that what you're doing in terms of work is real, mm. it's manifest. Mm. Um, so, what NDIS threatens to do is that it changes all of that into the idea of metrics. So, say um, say a, a customer wants some um, some sort of support, you know, like a trip to the shops. Mm. Um, uh, before you'd kind of use that as a bit of a soft entry point to see how the customer's going in terms of engaging with the everyday world mm. um, and seeing how they respond to it. Because when they use it, when they swipe a card, when they're using FPOS or if they're using self service, that tells you everything in terms of how they're going to cope. Mm. Might seem like a small thing, but that's in terms of cold entry and seeing what a customer can and can't do. That that's a, that's a very instrumental thing mm. to observe. So, what NDIS does is that it totally disregards any conversations or any um, any examinations of that, and to say, well, look, customer needs shopping. It's going to be three hours. That's it. Three hour block. Shazam! They're going to spend money on that. It's going to be three hours. Um, you come up with the software that's going to capture that. Um, you make sure that the customer or the worker completes it within three hours. And I suppose the other confounding thing about this arrangement too mm. is that you've kind of got to, everything is, um, everything has to happen within those three hours. So so no, no time for also doing work about socialization, capacity building, creating relationships in the community when you go shopping. It's just, we've got to get you to the shops. We've got to get your chicken in the, in the bag. We've got to get you home. Well, say if we stretch that example a bit further, um, you do the shopping run, you mm. come back home, uh, the the customer might be a public housing resident, mm. you notice that um, there's a couple of maintenance issues going on there, like a bit of a leaky floor maybe, mm. um, but your three hours are up. Now, if it was block funding, there would be a bit of agency for you to go, well, um, I might just give my boss a call to see if I can just spend a, a, another half hour or so to see if I can ring the maintenance line on behalf of the customer and with their mm. consent. But you can't do that. Once those three hours are up, that's Out. it. Because no more money. And the other thing as well is that because mm. 
with NDIS work as well, um, and this is where the Marxism really kicks in mm. here, I feel. So I think what I'm going to say for the purposes of this podcast is important. Okay, go. <laughs> when you're working as an NDIS worker, you're brought down a grade. So when you're brought down a grade, that means you're not paid to think anymore. Mm. Um, so if there's actually any surplus work or any surplus labor that's mm. to be done here, it's a thinking work. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, like a, a worker can be really smart enough to, um, or caring enough to think, well, I see a bit of a potential crisis here happening with the maintenance. Let's see if, um, let's see if we can fit resolving this issue within three hours. Mm-hmm. Now, the worker doesn't necessarily need to do that. Mm-hmm. They can just leave the leak and if something might happen to the customer, there's no issue, you yeah. know? but the human element remains. Um, so, yeah, there's a to me there seems to be a real Marxist tension there about the concrete stuff where it's like three hours, service, mm. contract. And then you've got the, the realistic stuff um, that might happen, like the stuff that just comes up because that's life. Mm. And then that... And then for the worker, it's kind of the presenter with that choice of, you know, do you, do you respond to that or do you just basically stick to the, the, the metrics of the, the, the way it's all set up? And, and this is always the, the kind of horrible thing about this kind of work is because you do care for the people yeah. you're working with. Yeah. Even though you're not, it's going to end up into your own time, you are going to work out a way of fixing the leaky tap on the whole, right? Because... because it matters. These people matter. So you self-exploit. Well, this is a thing where you you hope to God that, um, well, you hope to your anarchist God yeah. that uh, you have a you have a good boss yeah. that will appreciate the circumstances. Mm. But because NDIS is farmed out to a universe of not-for-profits, the mm. standards of management are quite variable. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have a real asshole boss that will say, well, "Look, you did all of that, but that's not what you're asked to do. Mm-hmm. Explain yourself." Yeah. That's a possibility too. Yeah. And is there much conversation going on amongst the workers about this change and any attempt to kind of intervene or or struggle over it? So I work as a union delegate and uh, in the last year or so, there's been a lot of of discussion about, yeah, the idea of grading. Um, Because where I work is that it's an, it's an interesting dynamic there where it's like you've got block-funded workers and you've got the NDIS workers. Um, and I've just explained um, how it's a lot more quantifiable in terms of what's demanded of the NDIS workers, right? So, and also that that tension that produces itself with the differences in grading. So we're getting paid more than the NDIS workers, but we're effectively doing the same thing. Mm. So when we start talking about our day-to-day stuff, um, they're getting they're getting angry because they're suddenly pushed into doing all this case management type stuff um, that we could be doing and not have too much of a fuss about, even though it's still both not according to the grades in terms of the, the job description, what mm-hmm. we're supposed to be doing, but it's a lot more profound when you're an NDIS worker and you've also got the bureaucracy you've got to abide to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those conversations do happen. Um, where I am working though is that um, you do have management that do get it, mm-hmm. but 
I suppose we're we're all in a um in a, in a an element of solidarity. There is the fact that we all respond. We're all responding to these holes that we're identifying about how it's how it's all being rolled out in such a bureaucratic, faceless manner. Mm-hmm. But is there nothing kind of organised yet at the moment that's coming through the union or outside the union? Um. Well, what? So I'm with the Australian Services Union, um, and. These days, a fair whack of community services are under the jurisdiction of the Australian Services Union. Mm. Um, there's probably others here and there. Of course, if you find yourself being a community worker within the public service, you're still with the Public Services Union. Um, so what the ASU was doing is that they've actually created a bit of a campaign behind it, the, behind this in terms of NDIS. Mm-hmm. So. What they've been advocating for at the policy level is is asking for a clear code of conduct mm-hmm. and and uh, and a good um, arbitrary process in terms of what happens if um, a worker does something that could be considered negligent um, or against the interests of the, the the client. How do you arbitrate that? You know, because none of that's in place. And that's one of the fucked up things about this too. Like they've inter- implemented all of this, but when things go pear-shaped, there's no bodies of review. Mm. Um, there's nothing there to arbitrate what can ha- what to do. Um, so this is where the ASU have stepped in and said, look, we need detail. Um, we'd like to hear it from you. And then from there, we'd like to continue a discussion about what that can look like and how that can be effectively accountable. Um, so that's one of the things they've been what doing. What do you think of that, of that approach and that campaign? Um, well, in itself, I mean, it's a very, it's still a removed thing from general membership. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other thing, I suppose the other thing that, um, the ASU has done as well is that, uh, they've also created these training sessions, um, where members, not only members, but non-members can also, um, uh, participate as well. And this has been around for half a year or so, so it's still an element of newness to it. Um, where you're getting skilled up on NDIS code of conduct, mm-hmm. um, but for me, it's it's and I've been to a couple of these. Um, for me, it's also provided a bit of a, an opportunity as well to express grievances under the NDIS system. Um, it's one of those rare opportunities where you can actually vent your spleen about mm-hmm. how bad it is, um, and the ASU people that are facilitating the training are more than happy to hear that. Um, so. That's been that's been the um, I don't know the, the virtues or the, the good the, the good things that have happened um, as a result of having these training sessions, but suppose from here and I suppose this is a question that 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 you might have as well, Dave, about how do you mobilise around those sort of things? Uh, yeah, and I think it's it's always been the real difficulty of any jobs that involves um, like any jobs that involve caring for people. Right, there's always a challenge about because you know the the classic playbook says industrial action, mm. right? And let, let's even assume people have the level of organisation to allow that. You know, does that actually hurt in the same way that people in a classic factory he stopped production? Does it hurt? Yeah. You know, and also there's there's people's deep. You know, I think people really. 
Obviously, because we're human beings, people who do work of care build real relationships with people that they care about. Yeah. You know, and that they go, we, we were talked about, everyone goes over, goes above and beyond all the time for the people you care about. Well, in the you classical know. Marxist sense, I mean, you're not supposed to have such an emotional attachment to the commodity that you produce, totally. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Like, it, it's not a box of nails, mm. right? These are human beings. And as you already said, that people often self-select into this work because they kind of make a choice, which is like, well, maybe the pay is less, but the, there's something in the work that I think is meaningful. Yeah. And I think that's true, right? Yeah. That's, to- that's totally true. Like, I, I think about, you know, was, there was a bit of time when I was um, a care worker where one of the things I did was to keep a woman, woman with Down syndrome company while she died from swine flu. Right, just to have someone. It was just someone. You know, I wasn't there when she died, but mm. in the days up, the service I worked for just said there has to be someone sitting with her in the hospital because it's a scary place. Yeah, you know, she just needs to know there's someone there to hold a hand. Right, it's tough work. It's, it's tough work, but you think back on it, you know, like and it, no one faltered. It was like, can you come in at one o'clock in the morning? You, we need you to be there till eight. Everyone was like, yep. And you think back about all the work you do in your life, mm. and. I remember those days, you know, it was meaningful days. Yep. So that poses a real challenge for kind of like how do you struggle in and against that work, right, in a mm. way that has an impact. And this um, is the thing as well. It's like uh, with the NDIS for incoming or, or going now, NDIS framework, there's no interest in measuring that as an outcome. Yeah. Um, or funding for it, right? Like... Yeah, I mean, the, the the service is there and that's what's being funded. Yeah. But when you're looking at the outcomes um, in terms of what the outcomes that are to be rendered by um, paying the money for, mm. for the service, that stuff is going to be overlooked. Yeah. And that's but, the powerful stuff. Yeah. And it does have an impact, right? Like mm. it changes people's quality of life. And as you were saying, with taking someone, there's, you can take someone to the shops or you can, you know do something else and take someone to the shops at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So, look, you're in the industry. How, what do you think? You know, like, what do you think kind of struggle around the NDIS could look like either in a perfect world or practically? Well, I think the first step is to understand it. Yeah. Um, because it's, um, it's, a, it's a head fuck. Yeah. Also, because you know, up until recently, everyone was on board for it, right? Well, it was well, just so, it was just sold as like, here's a big lot of money. Everyone's going to get more money. So people are like, brilliant, more money. Well, Excellent. maybe this is probably the other important point as well is that um, the history of this has to be understood entirely yeah. um, because um, this is a this is a this is the effect of a disability movement NDIS. Um, it's something that's been around for uh, it's a movement that was around for years and years mm. the the first national head of the NDIS is an old communist party organiser yeah yeah there's <laughs> all of that but I guess the the, the the profound thing that's happened here is that it's all gotten glossed over by this bureau speak um, and this stuff this huge pressure about having to try to quantify everything in terms of how it's being productive mm. um, on a financial basis yeah all of that is quite it is co-opted. Yeah. All the efforts that have been made in terms of how it um, how it was introduced. Because because that's the other point that is legitimate, right? Like you know, there's lots of people who, you know, had state-based services in the '80s that were hellish. Yeah. You know where it was, you know had no autonomy, were treated really badly. 
you know, you, you understand at some level when it says this will give you choice over your life. Who doesn't want fucking choice over their life? Mm. You know, it just becomes how that plays out. Well, I didn't get to choose yeah. about my sandwich, Dave. <laughs> Goes it both was, goes both ways. It was centrally planned. <laughs> <laughs> what, did you have to go into another room and like deliberate yeah. on it? And... It went through a computer, putting in some <laughs> in, in some outputs. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But anyway. So what do you what do you think? You know, because we need to understand it because it is a head fuck. Mm. What is there anything else on the? You know, there's obviously a, more of a critical conversation that's happening now as well. Yeah. Um, well, I think the concrete thing there is the fact that. Um, you can make a Marxist explanation out of what's mm. going on. Um, I think what we've just talked about, I think it's quite noteworthy, that idea of um, emotional value mm. in the work that you're doing, mm-hmm. because that I think that creates um, a bit of a nebulous situation in terms of applying the Marxism mm. to the situation. But at the same time, though, what can be observed concretely is that idea that um, you've got workers being exploited, yeah. like being asked to do some tasks that they're not necessarily graded to do. Yeah. That's something to gravitate around. Or even, you know, you could think about, you know, Capital Volume 1, Chapter 1, where like the use value of the work, the relationships, yeah. is being made subordinate to the exchange value, the dollar funding. Yeah. You know, like in a in a really profound way. Yeah. Where, yeah. Um, the, the relationships, they don't count. Yeah. What counts is money and measurable time. Yeah. I mean, mean, the relationship work kind of should be extracted in some way, but you're looking at a very horrific thing where it's just being completely disregarded. Like, it it just does not compute, you know? No, I've talked about this maybe on the show with Vanamali, but my my partner's mother um, does care work. And one of the in Canberra, and one of the things they experienced with NDIS was people that she had had long term relationships with, you know, who had been non linguistic when um, non speaking when she started working with them. Mm. And after years and years of really patient work that she wasn't paid for in terms of you know the work that she did, yeah, they were speaking and socialising. It just became no, your service is too expensive, and you lose all all those relationships just incinerated overnight. You know, yeah, yeah. So it's and that painful right like it's it's painful and certainly one of the yeah but you've got to be a professional and brush it off yeah <laughs> yeah who, do, who does the care work for the carers yeah yeah uh actually i'm just trying to think like i mean the yeah i guess suppose that depends upon the um depends upon the the organization and how substantial their um their critical debrief policies mm. are whistleblowing um well well wellness you hear some horror stories right yeah you know um you know i've got friends who are social workers and in housing providers for people with really difficult backgrounds you know they they witness self-harm all the time yep and aren't provided with professional counselors yep they get like a rap about it session with your boss afterwards and I'm imagining as well as like if they're tenancy workers, everything's got to be within the context of tenancy work. Yeah. So if they see stuff that's kind of extraneous to that, yeah. it's like, well, that doesn't count. You're not really supposed to process that. Yeah, insane, right? Like really, really difficult stuff. Yeah. All right, so we're approaching up to an hour. What have we not talked about that you really want to talk about in terms of NDIS? Um, I think I've kind of gotten to the nitty gritty of mm. it because I mean I could be here for hours to talk about it, and it's like I could do a big map, mm. um, and then it'd probably look like a scene out of a beautiful mind. Um, 
but yeah i guess those are the those are the big points mm. that it's it's an inherently bureaucratic approach um that is a struggle in itself mm. um and then i think once that's that's identified i think from there it's like the the the, the, the political um actions or responses can be undertaken mm. um it's, it's, yeah it's just it's unique in in many ways yeah one of the things that like automatically springs to mind as well is that i assume a lot of the people that you're working with are people who live in poverty you know and that there is in australia at the moment you know some comrades involved in like the poverty networks yep and they're mainly directed um around Centrelink. yep but maybe ndis is needs to also be thought about for a lot of people as part of what poverty is in australia yeah um so where uh, who group who i've also organized with is the australian unemployed workers union yeah um so a lot of their issues gravitate around the throes of engaging with centrelink mm. um there are a lot of parallels there of course with how people are, are engaging with ndis now mm. um maybe those are the intersections that could be addressed mm. um because that's been the the interesting thing about me personally in terms of my activist work because um i take things on a on a very intersexual basis mm. like there are all these different points of struggle um we're on the class plane mm. um i suppose where i'm at is that i'd like to try to um to to direct my time and energy towards the ones that um are vital the most mm. vital um and to me it seems like the ones where you're seeing people falling off the edge mm. in an economic sense. Um, and two theatres for that seems to be unemployment mm. and how people engage with welfare in terms of being able to um, survive. Uh, and the other thing as well is, um, is social housing mm. um, because uh, there is that rhetoric of housing being a privilege. Um so people may or may not get the housing that they need, especially if they're um, they're working or experiencing very high levels of crisis, um, where a roof over your head is 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 definitely important in terms of being able to come up with a plan to respond to that. Um, but then again, it's like homelessness is is seen as, is a, as a normal facet of society. You know, mm. um, that's the question: should it be? Um, and from there, it's like, does that require an alternative approach in yeah. terms of making change? Yeah, and it's interesting as well, because I think there's like multiple different, like, if not manifesting as antagonisms at the moment, but certainly like tensions and um, breakdowns in Australian society around housing, you know, ranging from people who are homeless to the level of mortgage stress and inflated and, you know, inflated house prices kept up by this huge engine of financial accumulation. Yep. And you see people out there, and also, you know, overdevelopment, planning, gentrification, all these things. Yep. And you see people out there on, to use your term, the class plane, yep. kind of pushing, trying to work out what a housing politics looks like in a way that I think people feel more real in Australian capitalism than trying to do over work at the mm. moment. You know, that it's like... It's seen, it's, I just, you get this kind of, you know, you can sniff it in the wind that, like, housing is the thing that 
people talk about quite a lot. Well, this as the point of dissatisfaction, you know. Yeah, I'd also like to contend as well. There's also I think there's also competing um, values within working class about housing. Totally. Yeah. Um, that idea of home ownership is still a pervasive and very enticing idea. Mm. And investment, right? Yeah. I, I think this is a lot of people have investment properties. Are people dependent on wages? White and blue collar workers, you know. Yep. Um, yep. But yeah, I suppose with the with the oh, sorry if it goes on a bit of a tangent here, but when you talk about um, about a, a group like Action for Public Housing and um, some of the things that they're demanding, you know, like with en- with all forms of estate development, um, whether it be private or public, or you know, um, at least thirty percent of it should be public. Mm. Now that that could be seen as a very extravagant demand, but at the very at the very least, it does introduce that idea of where is society's um, prerogative for public housing. Mm. You know, uh, can we return to this idea of housing being a right where there is a substantial amount of housing stock that's available for people who can't necessarily enter the housing market? Mm. Because yeah, it's the risk of sounding dramatic. You don't have a house, you risk dying yeah yeah everything else in life becomes and also uh, becomes almost ridiculous and impossible right you know with um without the the provision of housing yeah yeah, fascinating fascinating stuff Mm. um all right michael well (laughs) (laughs) it was a good sandwich dave (laughs) thank you for part one of michael (laughs) comes to queensland I, there's a lot in there. I think, as I mentioned before, for listeners, I'll put in the in the, the notes at the bottom. Um, we've I'll link back to our interview with Vanamali as well. And after Michael's show goes up, I'll start editing the interview with Rob. Uh, you know, talking about someone working in a department and how they understand it to really like flesh out this um, NDIS picture. Yeah. But we'll catch up with you. I think uh, outside on lunch on Tuesday. And we can keep on chat- chatting public housing, UBI. I'm really interested in because you recently wrote an article on um, on UBI. Yeah, yeah, and I inadvertently found myself um, getting into a bit of a, a debate about that. Yeah, jobs guarantee and modern monetary theory, huh? Like you can't yeah. say UBI without encountering that. So let's, um, you know, we'll we'll let's sign off here, and we'll catch up in a couple of days. Yeah, cheers, Dave. All right, thanks, Michael. Talk soon. Bye. Uh, you've been listening to Living the Dream.